1: and Cece Lira from P.S. Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Before we begin today's episode, I'd like to tell you a few exciting things that we've got coming up. All of our Kofi supporters will have access to additional, exclusive content. Each week, they'll see the written critique provided by Carly, Cece, or myself to one of the writers whose work will appear on the podcast. And those who support us on Kofi on a monthly basis will get access to even more additional critiques from that week's episode. Now, the written critiques offer additional information that isn't discussed on the podcast. It's additional observations, perhaps line edits, etc., that every writer can learn from. Now, if you want to support us on Ko-fi, head to the podcast page on my website, BiancaMoray.com, and there's a sign-up button there. And then, as well, we're running a fundraiser for Coletto Mapai, a South African author who's been a guest on the podcast. Coletto is an enormously talented writer who's been accepted to prestigious grad schools across the world to do her master's in creative writing. Now, writers of color face huge barriers to entry in publishing, which is why we need more own voices stories. We're raising funds to help empower Coletto to pursue her dreams and to help reduce some of those barriers to entry. Now for every $20 that you donate to this amazing cause, you get one ticket into the draw, to have a full manuscript evaluation done by me. Once we reach the halfway mark in our fundraising efforts, I will do the first draw for a full manuscript evaluation. And once we reach our final goal, I will do a second draw for another full manuscript evaluation. So if you would like to support Coletto, again, go to the podcast page on the website, BiancaMarie.com, and you can make your donation there. And then, and finally, don't forget about our upcoming The Shit No One Tells You About Writing virtual retreat in January. We have an amazing lineup of world-renowned writing experts, including Lisa Cron from Story Genius. Jessica Brody, Save the Cat, writes a novel. Courtney Mom from before and after the book deal. Valerie Francis, who's an accredited editor in the Story Grid method. We also have Sally Kim, who's one of the most amazing editors in the world, who'll be chatting with all of us. And we have Britt Bennett, who is the number one New York Times best-selling author of *The Vanishing Half*. This is not a lineup you want to miss. The retreat will have 16 hours of jam-packed content, which is the equivalent of signing up for an eight-week writing course where each class is two hours per week. But even if you signed up for a class like that, you'd have one instructor, as opposed to industry experts, whose brains you'll be able to pick after their presentations. And then besides the fabulous guests, we'll be offering writing software discounts to our delegates, as well as the chance to win amazing prizes and then we've set up the Shit No One Tells You About Writing book club which CC will be running four times a year in which we'll not just be reading a book together but unpacking it as writers in terms of elements of craft and those who sign up as delegates will automatically get access to that book club. So if you're interested in that go to the website it's under the courses and retreats page and sign up for that. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Books with Hooks segment. Today, we've got two authors on who have submitted their work to the new Books with Hooks format via the website, whereby as a writer, you need to pick which agent you would like to submit to, either Carly, CC, or a guest agent who specializes in your particular genre. And today, we're starting off with Melissa Chen, who submitted her query specifically for Carly, and she was chosen to come onto the show to discuss the query with Carly. So Melissa, welcome to the show. It's wonderful to have you on. Could you read us your query letter?
2: Thank you. I will. Dear Bianca, Cece, and Carly, Bianca, thank you for your podcast. I binge listen when I'm not playing referee to my three boys and while doing chores, Carly and Cece, when CeCe was at a different agency, you both requested pages over a year ago for a manuscript I queried too early. CeCe, we met at a virtual conference where I pitched to you and thought I had something, but in the end, I came to realize that the work was not right. Since facing those rejections, I applied to a mentorship program within WFWA and was afforded the opportunity to work with an agented author and editor. This new manuscript I have is something new with the same heartbeat I long to convey but missed in my first. This round, I hope I'm getting closer to getting it right. I believe this new submission fits Carly's list best as I know from following her Twitter that she has been interested in marketing line management story angles and the women who follow them. Momfluencer Ashley Berg is not used to rejection, not on social media anyway. So when her new neighbor, Stephanie, attends a Facebook sales party yet buys nothing, Ashley stalks Stephanie's profile to make sure she hasn't stolen Ashley's hard-won following. But Stephanie, whose interracial family faces problems, Problems of its own in this conservative neighborhood desperately wants a real friend, not invisibility hair care products, and sinks into social media addiction by staging family posts to earn a like from the head of the mom pack, Ashley Berg. But all is not as it seems. When Ashley and Stephanie's entwining problems come to a head, Ashley's hidden alcoholism is endangering both her and her family, and racist attacks against Stephanie's family from within invisibility hair care turn violent. Will the women find the courage to delete their social accounts and enjoy the benefits of real life friendship. Partially born of my experience with social media and as a mom in a biracial family, Liked is a work of commercial women's fiction with dual POV complete at 80,000 words, satisfying as a standalone yet with series potential. This is the Social Dilemma meets Everybody Loves Raymond with a Chinese-European American family and for fans of Siri Who Am I and Good Apple. I am a member of WFWA and have a short story published in Adelaide Literary Magazine. Thank you for your consideration.
1: Awesome, Melissa. Thank you so much. Right, Carly, why don't uh, you let Melissa know what you thought of that query letter?
0: Melissa, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I know it's so nerve-wracking and you're just so generous putting your work out there and putting it on the podcast for hundreds, you know, if not thousands, you know, how popular is our podcast these days? I don't know, to, to listen to and learn from. So we're, we're so thankful that you're putting yourself forth so overall, first I'm going to talk about the concept and then I'll kind of like break down the query letter itself. So I really like this concept. It feels very modern. A lot of women are going through this with like friends with the MLMs and all of that stuff and our relationship to social media and community. And, and so I, I, you know, especially moms feeling really isolated and MLMs and Facebook and social media is a way to kind of pull people together, especially during this vulnerable time, whether it's maternity leave or being a stay-at-home mom. So I, I feel like this does really tap into... Into that, and so I've been really interested to find a project in this space because I think, as I said, it, there's an intersection of so many topics within just like women's issues, and obviously this is women's fiction. So I, I do feel like this is interesting, and it has a hook here that I do think is compelling. And so I think a lot of you know my job is you know when, when I when I talk about queries on the podcast is really just how can we like tease out the hook, not bury things, and and really help things rise to the top. So in terms of structure um, of the query itself, I know a lot of this. Top level stuff in terms of like, thank you for the podcast explaining all this stuff is a completely appropriate for the podcast. So I, I know why you put those two paragraphs in there, and for the purpose of the podcast, so, so that's great. Obviously, you know when you're if you're querying widely with this, that wouldn't be something that you'd include in there, which I think you know. But I, but I but I do appreciate that you included all that great background for us. Um, just a shout out to Women's Fiction Writers Association. I think it's a great organization, I've worked with them since the beginning when Orly created it. So shout out to them. I think they do really really amazing work and. And have such good um, networks there. So I think that's a great organization to be a part of. So I think that's great. And then the third paragraph, I call it multi-level marketing. I don't know if some people call it different things in different places in terms of like MLM, I would call it multi-level marketing. But again, I don't know if it's that's just like regionally, it's known as different things to other people, but we're talking about the same thing, the MLMs for sure. So now we're into our one, two, three, fourth paragraph. So a couple questions I had in this paragraph are why the hair products, you know, you have an opportunity opportunity here to be selling anything right and there's so many mlms there about like skincare and everything like that so i wasn't sure if there was some sort of metaphor there or like whether there was like an elevated level of like what are we going to find out about hair care that we don't know so i wasn't i don't know if that needs to be told in the query invisibility hair care i'm like what why do like is this Ashley Person a really good saleswoman? Is she gonna tell everybody, you know, why they need like this new hair thing? Is it wigs? Like, I don't know like what it is about the hair. And again, I don't know if this is a metaphor for something else, whether this is very like self aware. I don't know. I just had some questions about like why hair. <laughs> but but overall, like yeah, I think this is really realistic. And one of the questions I had in this in this paragraph was so it says what so when her new neighbor Stephanie attends a Facebook party, yet buys nothing. I was curious about what exactly she's selling, right? And so I but I get when we get to the pages, we figure it. Out. obviously she's selling an MLM She's not selling products which is what we know about MLMs and slash pyramid schemes and all of that sort of stuff so that all makes sense to me in the grand scheme of things but for sake of a query we really need to hit that really specifically and then the next one so the thing about women's fiction that I know and I love I love the category so much but a lot of times what's that what's that stake here is the stakes, right? Like I want to know with women's fiction, what happens if this doesn't work out? And with women's fiction, sometimes it's a very passive stake. It's like women can't find her true identity or, you know, there's like a friendship breakup or a marriage breakup or a career that isn't realized, you know, and sometimes the stakes in women's fiction can be a little soft. And so I really wanted to know with this, and this is what makes women's fiction loud and, and very hooky is what really is at stake if this doesn't work out. So is it, you know, I had some notes here, like obviously there's a huge things, right? like the alcoholism and, and racism, you know, in this community, but in terms of like what happens and um, what what makes it really personal, I think I just needed to know why, right? Because if you, an easy solve to this would be like, she can just move, you know? We, we need to just have like not simple answers to things like that. Like, why does she need to live here? Why can't she move? Why does she be, need to be in this community? Why does she want friends? And what's at stake if she doesn't have friends and or her life goes bust, that sort of thing. And that's what's hard with women's fiction. So I get that. and <laughs> I have a lot of empathy for writing hooky women's fiction pitches because you're like all the goods in the manuscript, right? You just got to get there. But the query like has to focus on those hooks. And so I want to know what's at stake and, and just really figure out what makes it personal. You know, is it just the fact that she's going to be a lonely mom? And in real life, that that is a stake, right? But for fiction, we just need more to elevate that. But other than that, I think it's really strong. You know, I think the um, author bio paragraph is great. I like the title. It doesn't say a lot, obviously. Like, liked could mean lots of things. I think the cover image would have to do a lot of work here, so I'd be open to other titles. But yeah, I think I think overall it's pretty good. I would generally have all this this bottom paragraph at the top. I would usually have the I would have the title and the comps and dual POV and all of that at the top. But I know there's many different ways of writing query letters, but usually I just like to know that to kind of frame um, my understanding of what's to come. So so yeah, that, that's kind of it. Any questions on my query critique?
2: Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm so happy to have gotten the chance to hear all of that from you. And I wrote everything you said down. So I, I think it's clear. I think that I have the specifics that I can go back and add. Thank you.
1: Carly, but did you want um, Melissa to answer any of those questions specifically for you? Or was it just a case of you wanted her to pay attention to that when she finishes drafting up that query letter?
0: Yeah, I think it's just, I just wanted to plant those seeds for thinking about the stakes. That's kind of the biggest thing, but yeah.
1: Before we move on to the actual pages, Cece, did you have any thoughts based on that? Anything you'd like to add?
3: I thought that was an amazing critique as always. My very, very small note is to third sentence of the fourth paragraph, change the but for meanwhile it makes more sense in terms of like introducing two different women. And plus you already use a but in the next paragraph. It is like the world's most minor thing, but hey.
1: Thank you. Thank you. We don't like many butts, and we cannot lie. Right. <laughs> um, okay. Melissa, would you like to tell us what's in your opening pages?
2: Sure. Thank you. So we begin in the point of view of Stephanie. Who has just moved into this neighborhood and knows that her neighbor is a mom influencer and widely popular on Facebook is very excited to have received a friend request from this neighbor Ashley and is especially excited to have been invited to this hair care party. She gets over her mom guilt about needing to leave her babies behind with her mother in law and goes to a store, buys the wine, comes back next door to. Attend the party. tries to get in, but the door is locked. She jumps down into the mulch. Looks through the window to see or is everyone already there. Then sees Ashley sitting at her computer, and then realizes that this is not a live in-person party, but this is a complete Facebook party that she will need to go back home alone again and attend the party via Facebook. So she does. She gets her avatar for the party based on the on her birthday, ends up being Betty Boop. She starts feeling very cynical about the entire party. The things that this uh, person, Ashley, is doing to sell her this product seems unbelievable to her. Um, She's starting to question what she's even attending. It's reminding her of a cult that she almost joined back in college. But she needs friends more than anything else. And so she will do whatever she needs to do to make those friends.
1: Wonderful. Thank you. All right, Carly, why don't you let us know what you thought of those opening pages?
0: So we are the the timestamp queens, the name queens. So I would start off chapter one. What's the year? Who are we talking to? Because you're going to jump between POVs, right? So we need to know whose POV this is. We get it really quickly, but for the sake of organization, for the sake of anybody reading at night, you know, they're forgetting what chapter they left off on or they want to remember whose POV they're in. It's really important for us to just know where we are. And it's just a, such a simple solve there. So that would be important to me. And so on page one, we have a line that says, but tonight would change everything. So I want to know what are we changing here, right? Is it the fact that she's a single mom or something like that? And, and you know, this is going to change for X, Y, Z reason. Is it because she's missing, she's missing something. This is going to fill a gap for her. Like, what is it that is going to change this night for her? And I think that's just too passive of a goal, right? So I think that would be important. What I really felt like we were missing in this, in this opening section is just a real connection with the character I think there was a few opportunities that you missed in terms of like for example she she goes to her closet you don't say her walk-in closet her you know rack of clothes her cramped drawer like what kind of closet is this and to me that would tell me something about it instead of being like Stephanie had a lot of money or like Stephanie's you know just just getting by instead of doing that you can use through adjectives or describing these things that are adjacent to her financial situation to tell us much more about her so I just think you miss a lot of opportunities there just to create this visual for, for Stephanie and who she is. And also she's in this neighborhood. She's next door to a momfluencer. It doesn't mean, you know, this momfluencer is a millionaire. I mean, a lot of people are, you know, objectively momfluencers and maybe not financially, right? So there's, there's a lot of layers here. And I just don't think we're hitting on like the classism element of this in a way that I think we really could, but very subtly, right? So I'm not saying hit us over the head. I'm just saying like, uh, how can we be subtly explaining the classism and, and her position in society? Um, you know, in all of these ways, like her clothes, right? So you say she's going to put on a black sequin tank to add to her khaki shorts. So why does she choose those items? What is the, what do those clothes say about her identity and, and our clothes, especially when we're going to a party, right? Like what do we want our clothes to say about us when we're going to a party we care a lot about? I wouldn't be wearing khaki shorts to a party that I, that I hope that people, you know, think one way of me. I don't know. Khaki shorts aren't my go-to personally, but that's okay. But what about her says like, I'm wearing my khaki shorts because I feel good in my khaki shorts. Or I want to wear my khaki shorts because they're the only thing that fit me right now for any reason of weight fluctuation or, or children or things like that, right? So what is it about that outfit that makes her feel powerful, or she puts it on and doesn't feel powerful, right? So I think I just think there's lots of opportunity to weave in classism and identity through through um, some opportunities there. So the next thing I was thinking about was the the physical humor opportunities here. So I was thinking about she's on the I I love the scene where she's just like so excited about this event. She's on the porch like ready to like meet these moms and then she's like oh shit like (laughs) this is a virtual party I am embarrassed right and so I love that she's just like drops down into the mulch but I think it would have been better if Ashley went to the door and Ashley's like I heard somebody rustling or my nest cam like saw something and my nest cam was you know uh, sent sent me a alert or something like that again depends on like where you are in in classes about society about like whether you have a nest cam or how you feel about surveillance society but you know what I mean like there's an opportunity there for Ashley to come to the door. And, and she's like hiding in the bushes being like, shit, this is my first, this is my first interaction with my influencer neighbors. So again, I don't think you have to go total like rom-com or like Bridget Jonesy, like physical humor, but I just think there's some opportunities there that could be missed or that were missed that maybe you could just like hit a bit harder in terms of memory, like how memorable you want that opening scene to be, because I think you have a very memorable scene here. I want to know more about how she feels about, you know, this mom guilt and having to sneak up stairs and, and be on her Facebook page and and things like that. I was a little bit confused about the section about um, the smells and how they were like, can you smell this? I don't know. I was a little bit confused about that. I'm like, obviously it's the internet people like we can't smell this. So I don't know if she is trying to be like super like, mlm like wellness culture, like envision you smelling this or I don't know. I just don't know if that hit the way that I wanted it to. So those are my notes. So um any questions for me? Hold on,
1: before we, before we go into that, I would like to say that this sounds like my life because this is the exact kind of shit that happens to me all the time. And I would be wearing my khaki shorts because that'll disguise the dip or shit I'm going to drop on myself five minutes into the whole thing anyway. But before we go on to that, Cece, do you have anything to add on that just before we get Melissa to start asking us questions? or if any brainstorming. Did you have anything you wanted to add?
3: Oh, I really enjoyed this. And my note was actually similar to Carly's. I, I felt like the MLM angle was not sufficiently exploring all the elements that it could. I needed more subtlety, but also more information, which is hard. But again, like I'm just echoing everything Carly said at this point.
1: Awesome. Okay, Melissa, what um, feedback do you have for, for Carly and what questions do you have?
2: Um. Again, thank you. <laughs> I don't think that I can say thank you. Too many times this opportunity is just amazing to receive all of this feedback. And again, I'm, I'm just, I'm writing it down. I get what you're saying. And I agree with what you're saying that I I can bring out the class elements. I think that's a really important thing that I missed. And that's really important for the whole MLM as well. And the relationships that these women form. So I'm excited to go back and thread that in. I think I agree. I I think I, I had the smelling over the internet thing, had it in for a while And initially, I think I had written it a different way. And I don't think that it's working. Um, So I think I I may even just take that out entirely the whole, because it's just too unbelievable. I kind of wanted her to come across as skeptical, Stephanie to come across as skeptical of this whole product that she's getting pitched but I think that part might be too much
0: yeah because I think I think we need to hit on why hair in this section too like why this product like why this product over other products I think because if you're trying to highlight the fact that this product is absolute bullshit and yet Ashley's trying to sell the hell out of it like I think you can highlight that a bit more in that push and pull I think that's what Cece's getting at with like there's opportunities for subtlety and then there's opportunities for tell us like how self-aware is Stephanie supposed to be or how self-aware is actually to be or not to be and how self-aware do you want the reader to be you know along with this journey what are you, are you trying to also convince us that this hair product is great or are you trying to also bring us along for the like yeah mlms or bullshit yeah. what
1: was your thought in terms of choosing hair over something else tell us your intentions
2: okay initially um there's without saying the name, there is a real hair care product that was an MLM that I attended in real life, a party. <laughs> and But the thing was that it was, it was a real life moment, not over the internet. And uh, I really could not smell the product. <laughs> And they kept asking me to smell it in different ways, and there was zero scent, and I did not have a cold or anything. <laughs> so that got me thinking. Um, I think it do- it doesn't work when it's just an over the computer type of a smell this product. But invisibility, I did want the product to have the name invisibility haircare because I, I it is a metaphor for just these things are are invisible. They're being pitched as these amazing miracle products that you could be a part of selling and earning lots of money if you, you know, make it, but it's invisible. It's not, these things are not real. I mean, it can't do anything for you. I had another thought, but I forgot where I was going with that. <laughs>
1: yep, that's that's fine. So collie knowing that, is there something you can suggest to help her land it better or is there another product you think she might choose that might make it land a bit better?
0: I don't know I I kind of like the hair and I just like that Ashley's going all in on hair I don't know it's so funny to me just because I don't know I believe you it's real like there's MLMs about absolutely everything right and it does hit on the like the beauty culture and women like being sold all the stuff that makes them feel beautiful so so yeah I, I don't have a problem necessarily with the hair I just think if there's more you're trying to say about it just make sure that we have all the information that we need to know about the hair it could be even like if you're trying to get on the smell stuff like it could be even when Stephanie's on her porch it's like you know she's on the porch and she's like even her house just smells great or something I don't know something like that where you if you do want to incorporate like a smell sense like I think there might be an opportunity there. or when like or when if if, if Ashley does come to the door because I do think Ashley should come to the door like maybe she opens the door and then then Stephanie's like oh my god her house smells amazing or something
1: yeah uh, okay, so Melissa, we have three more minutes. Do you have questions specifically for Carly or Cece on things that you may be stuck with? Anything you want them to brainstorm on?
2: Sure, yeah. So I remembered the one thing that I had paused on. What I would like to have is Stephanie, in terms of you were asking about her awareness, in this opening scene, I do want her to be self aware and aware that this sounds cultish, this sounds unbelievable. But throughout the novel, I want her to fall more and more into this cult and to really become entrenched in it, um, to start believing in it herself even before she gets back out again. So in this opening scene, how much more specificity do you think like in regards to her past or in regards to how she's thinking or perceiving this product should I go?
0: Well, I think I think you're hitting on that arc of growth, right of her just being like, I know this is bullshit, but I almost don't care. right At this point it's like I just want to sense a community. I just want to feel connected to other human beings. And I think that's how MLMs get people right. They're like, come on in, it's not about the product, it's about the community, right. I don't know if, you, if anybody has watched the the Lula Rowe documentary, Lula Rich documentary on uh, I think it was Amazon, but it was so good, right And what they're talking about is like they're not they're selling a culture, they're selling a feeling, they're not selling products. <laughs> you know, and it's like they want you on board. And and I totally get why women get drawn into this because they want friends, right? Obviously, they want to be rich because they're promised they're going to be rich. And we know that like 0.0% of people, 0.01% of people actually get rich. But the reason they stick in it is one, they get kind of deep into it financially, which if our character does have a financial risk here that you're gonna get into in terms of these classism elements, I think that's important, but the sense of community, right? And and I think that you're you're hitting on here, and I'm getting the sense that she needs this community she needs to feel part of something so as long as you're like fully fleshing out that arc the classism the money the community in a way that grows with she can retain that self-awareness but she it's fine for her to go drink the kool-aid i think that's totally fine but we need that reckoning of like what happens when the shit hits the fan yeah and
1: in terms in terms of that character arc remember who your character is at the end of the novel needs to be different to who they are at the beginning of the novel and so long as along the way things are changing for her and she's going going, well, this is bullshit, but oh, now I'm part of the inner group. Now I'm part of the clique, so I don't care that it's bullshit. Now I need to get even closer to her, so that we can see her trading her values against this thing she wants. So we need to see her getting this thing she desperately wants, and then not caring so much that it is a cult, as she gets what she wants. And that's a gradual thing that needs to happen in the action beats through, throughout the novel, so that change happens by the end.
0: Thank you. I think you have something really interesting here. I th- I think you've you really layered in a lot of nuance. It feels very modern. So yeah, I, I really think you're onto something. So stick with it. I think you got something here and, and well done. Thank you. We wish you much luck, Melissa. Good luck with it. Keep Thanks. us updated and let us know how it goes.
2: Okay. Thank you so much.
1: All right. So that was Melissa. And now we're moving on to our second guest, Stephanie Andresen, who submitted her query letter to CC. Welcome, Stephanie. Will you read that query letter for us?
4: Dear Cece, Carly and Bianca. I was on my morning walk when I heard that you were opening up submissions again for the podcast, and immediately I jogged home to enter, which is really saying something as I will do almost anything to avoid jogging. Listening to your smart and gentle critiques over the past few months has been immeasurably helpful to me, and I thank you for your generosity and wit. I'm happy to present my debut novel, Girls Trip, upmarket women's fiction, 80,000 words, multi-POV for your consideration. Marrying the grief-stained irony of Netflix's Dead to Me, with the relational tension of Leanne Moriarty's Truly Madly Guilty, Girls Trip examines the dark side of friendship and the lengths to which we'll go to protect the ones we love. Beth, Holly, Jamie, and Amanda have been friends for more than a decade. They know everything about each other, from the intimate details of Beth's latest online dating adventure to Holly's worries about getting her daughter into the college of her dreams. Although lately, things have been a bit strained, Holly has been distracted, and Jamie has grown increasingly distant with all of them, especially Amanda. When Beth finds out that Amanda's husband has accepted a job out of state and that a move is imminent, she suggests that the four of them resurrect their old tradition of going to Holly's lake house for a weekend girls' trip. But before the sun sets on their first night away... One of the women will shatter the gossamer strands that bind the four of them together with an impossible plea for help. Four old friends, three little black envelopes, one deadly request. How far would you go to help a friend? Before settling in the Pacific Northwest, my family and I spent several years living in the Detroit metro area where I met a group of women who became my dearest friends. We are scattered across the United States now, but we meet up once a year for our annual girls trip. I drew my inspiration for this novel from those yearly getaways and my own dark imagination. My friends have requested that I make it clear that any resemblance to actual persons living or dead is entirely coincidental, especially Holly. Thank you for your consideration, Stephanie and Content warning child loss, suicide, terminal illness. Wonderful, Stephanie. Thank you so much. Okay,
1: Cece, what did you think of that query letter? I
3: feel like any query letter that starts with Leanne Moriarty, like one of my favorite authors of all time, immediately grabs my attention.
1: Cece, just if you have listened to the podcast, with Amy Einhorn, she corrected us, and it's a Leon Moriarty. Oh. After many, many years, of being Leon's editor, Amy finally realized she was saying Leon's name wrong. So carry on.
3: Lovely. I have also been saying Leon's name wrong. So anyway, as I was saying, Leon Moriarty, I I love this. So I will say Truly Madly Guilty is not one of my favorite novels that Leon wrote, but still really good. And I like that you're not comping Big Little Lies because everyone just comps that and it's become too big. So I love that you gave me title, word count, genre comps. I love that each of their names Start with a different letter. I know it probably seems really silly, but in an ensemble cast, So many people do like Susie and then, I don't know, Stephanie, and it just gets really confusing to have the same first first letter to each name. So that's really good too. What I think needs work in this query letter, which is by the way, a very, very strong query letter. By the time we get to the last sentence of the paragraph that starts with their names. So the sentence that starts with, but before the sun sets on their first night away, I feel like by then you've done a really, really great job with the setup four close friends spending one last weekend together before big life change right like and it's extra interesting because their friendship is strained and don't quite know why so i'm i'm engaged in that but the language of that sentence the sentence that i'm mentioning is super vague i need to know more about the escalation of tension to feel properly invested i need to know what specific plot points I am going to experience when they get there to show that you have created specific high stakes, ever increasing conflict. And like, this is something we've covered in the podcast before. I get that you don't want to give too much away. I mean, at least that's what I assume is going on here. But I do think we need a little bit more because if you think about it, the interesting part of the story is what happens at this lake house, right? But all we know is that before the sun sets, one of the women will shatter the gossamer strands that bind the four of them together. Beautifully written, but you gotta agree with me. It is the world's vaguest sentence, right? Like what, like what does that mean? I have no idea. So So I do think we need more. And sometimes when I'm working with an author and I realize that they haven't given me enough, it's usually for one of two reasons. Either the first reason I mentioned, which is they don't want to give us spoilers, but then just give us a little bit more and then stop at the climax. Or their story does not have enough stakes yet. The wonderful thing about stakes and tension is they can always add it. There's tons of really, not easy as in they're not time consuming, but like easy as in objective ways to add tension to your story. So I think that's what we have to chat about. I'm glad you're on the show because this if this were a query letter that I were reading without you here, I'd be like, I want to know why, why are you doing this to me? So that's one of my questions. And then the other question, once we get to the isolated line that we have before your, your author paragraph, again, like three little black envelopes, one deadly request, like this would be very intriguing. But given the lack of specificity that I mentioned, it feels like it's coming out of left field. I almost feels like feels like you plucked the sentence out of a different query letter. Because I'm like, what deadly request envelopes? Like I have like, do you know? what? Is this is this making sense? This is my question for you. So okay. so, could you tell us a little bit more about the plot? Like and and stop at the climax. But when in doubt, just just tell us because I need to I need to know more to help you know what you should put there.
4: Sure. What happens is one of the women is dying. And she uh, has set up this weekend getaway to have her friends come out. She wants them to help her kill herself. Okay. Okay. Um, and
3: what about the reason for the strained friendship? Is someone sleeping with someone's husband? Has someone stolen money from someone?
4: The, um, strained, um, the strained friendship between Jamie and Amanda is maybe too much of a spoiler. Okay. That um, okay. something happened. Is it connected um, to
3: death, sex, or money? Yes. All three it's-
4: no, it's it's connected to uh to death. We might be
3: getting too monothematic here. It's possible we'll need to introduce another another plot point. I don't know. I'll have to read a little bit further to to give you good advice. Okay, I think we pause on the query letter because I also don't want to know what's what's gonna happen.
1: Just just a second, uh Cece, I'm gonna ask Carly's opinion, but just oh, but something so you to to think about is do you think that she should add the part that it gets revealed that the one woman is dying and wants her friends to help her because is that the climax of the story or is that further along and is therefore that spoilage yeah so can you can you tell us where more or less at what word count this this reveal happens
4: probably like 30 percent of the way in
3: Okay. Then it's okay. Then it's typically okay for us to know. We get to know everything up till the climax. That's that's like a rule of thumb. Yeah. I, I, I think we might be getting too monothematic here. And I think if we add something to the story, like literally one more ingredient to the quiche, the quiche will be perfection. But I also wanted to say, which I forgot, I really like the line about my friends have requested to make it clear that any resemblance um, is entirely coincidental. And I love that you have a dark imagination because so do I. And I think that the best people do.
0: Awesome.
1: Thanks. Cece, Carly, there was something you wanted to add there?
0: yeah so I just want to talk big picture for a second so you're pitching this as upmarket women's fiction but there are a lot of really dark things happening here is there a thrill like would you call this a thriller or why are you not calling it a thriller I guess is my question because I think for comps like I'm thinking like Lucy Foley's The Guest List and and The Hunting Party come to mind when you're thinking about you know a group of friends get together or you know Ruth Ware's first book right like that whole like drop some friends in a pressure cooker situation and dark shit happens that's more of a thriller element. So I'm just kind of wondering why you didn't position this as a thriller, or is it more soft in tone? Like, I'm just trying to get a tone check from you. Yeah.
4: So um, the tone I'm really going for is really like our friend Leon. So a lot, I mean, there's a lot going on, but it it focuses a lot on sort of the inner workings of the four women's minds um, and less kind of on like a danger that they're all creeping around. They're not
0: like an imminent danger is kind of what you're saying. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm just kind of, yeah, I don't know. I just feel like there's a lot of good comps of, out there of like we we drop down, you know, some friends in a in a contained location. I think the dead to me and the Leon comps are are good then, if if that's what you're going for. I think what I think Cece's right though. I think we need to just yeah, make sure it's a little bit clear that it's not a thriller, maybe, or because about these little black envelopes and how they're dropping out of nowhere. Like when you say these little black envelopes and a deadly request, like to me, that's a thriller, right? And so I know you're trying to dance around the fact that we're not talking about like assisted suicide or anything like that but yeah I feel like it's coming out of nowhere and it's coming off like a thriller. So
4: just cut that line do you think?
0: But it's really interesting so yeah I don't know it's hard because when we're we're doing these critiques it's like we haven't read the whole book so and sometimes it's hard for us to to give as much feedback as we want to. Do
1: you think if Stephanie states you know what that climax is and says they all get together and it's revealed that one of the friends is dying and she needs her friend's help do you think if she gives that climax and then moves on to the rest it'll feel less like a thriller and then we understand more it's an assisted suicide
0: yeah yeah and then it will feel more like a moments fiction yeah i agree
1: stephanie do you have any questions
4: based on the feedback on the query letter before we go into the actual pages um so what i'm hearing is go ahead and go all the way up until holly reveals why she brought them there and then put in the four old friends three envelopes part right
3: for now yes But I do have questions about the pages that might change. But I worry that it's still too monothematic. So we'll address that later. It's what Carly said without us having read the whole thing. It's
4: too hard. Okay, right. Stephanie, will you give our listeners an overview of what's in those opening pages? Yeah, Mm -hmm. so... The opening pages start with a woman called Lorna, and she's picked up a stranger and is driving her to the hospital. And we don't really know anything about the stranger in the car, except that something shocking happened at the beach. And uh, Lorna saw the woman, the stranger's friend being pulled out of the water, and she's driving her to the hospital to presumably see what's going on with the friend that they pulled out of the water.
1: Okay. Wonderful. Thanks, Stephanie. Cece, what was your take on those opening pages?
3: I'm going to do something I've never done before on the podcast. I'm going to share my screen. Can you oh, I thought, that, I thought you
1: were going to sing. I thought you were going to sing. I was getting oh, very excited. Singing Hold is on. for Carly. <laughs> Hold on. <Here> we <laughs> One go. day I'm going to join
3: Carly in the singing. Stephanie, is this your, your opening page? Yes. Okay. For the listener, what is going on in this section that I am currently moving my mouse over, my cursor. No timestamp? Well, it's a blank space, right? So you're right that there's a no here. My question to you, Stephanie, because I think you're being sneaky. I admire sneaky people. Is this a prologue, Stephanie? (laughs) Stephanie, tell us the truth.
4: Is this a prologue?
3: And isn't it true, Stephanie, that you have deleted the word prologue because we do not like prologues.
4: No, I never typed the word prologue. Ah, very good. You're getting off on a technicality. Well, Stephanie,
3: in addition to cross-examining you, I am also going to, for the second time on this podcast, eat my words. This prologue works. You did a really good job. And also good job with the sneaky thing because I might've been like, oh, prologue, but I didn't and it works. And I knew it was a prologue right away. And I'm going to go back to, see, look at the markup. What did I write here?
1: I think this is a prologue. Yeah. So Cece, why? Okay, um, let's go back
3: to stop sharing screen.
1: And For, for for our listeners, why do you think the prologue works when so few of them do?
3: Okay. So the prologue works and I still have notes on it, but the prologue works because... First of all, the writing is great. This is very good. You're a very good writer. I totally get the Leon comp. It's voicey, just like her. The interiority of this character is like, you just nailed it. It's so, so good. I was, it's not that I would have kept on reading. It's that I was upset, like very, very upset that I did not have the next pages. I want to read this. Please, please, please send this to me whenever it's ready. I hope it's ready now because I'm curious. It's working specifically in this case. Yes, because it incites curiosity, but because in addition to the great writing and everything else, Lorna, who is not one of the four people, right? So you typically, this doesn't work starting with somebody who's not one of the four people. Lorna is an outsider and her assumptions of the stranger that first of all, all we know is a stranger. And then all we know it's a, that it's a girl. And then we know it's actually a woman with a wedding band. Like this escalation from an outsider's perspective, is just a very effective device to get us invested in the story. Plus this means that I probably won't get too attached to the, one of the four friends right from the beginning. Cause if you had started with one of them, I would have gotten extra attached to the first one. Have you read apples never fall? Did you notice that you did what she did in the first chapter? You have the waitress. I'm not ruining anything for anyone. Listeners apples never Fall is Leon's latest book. Chapter one: It's a waitress listening into the conversation of four siblings, and what we glean from this waitress's eavesdropping—let's just be honest—that's what she's doing. She's being sneaky and curious. Is that their mom is missing? That they worry their dad might be a sub- suspect, and that they're somehow worried that this person called Savannah is connected. And so we have the dramatic question at the end of chapter one: Is where is this woman? why would the dad be a suspect? And who the heck is Savannah? So you did what she did. So this is very good. I love it. I love it. I love it. As I was reading this. So first page I got, you know, she glanced over at the stranger beside her. And I was like, I want to get sharp visuals on this stranger. There are no sharp visuals. And then immediately after you give me sharp visuals. So like, you just kept answering every single question I had. The, the voiciness was great. At one point, Lorna asks, are you local just visiting? And I was like, I want to know her tone. And immediately you tell me her tone, right? Like you say that the voice had the strained quality that made it sound false. And she was bothered by that. So you gave me her tone. You gave me character development. So Lorna is an awesome character, but I'm also not super attached to her. And that's on purpose. I'm sure because she's, she's not one of the main people, right? Like, just like I wasn't attached to the waitress on apples number fall. So absolutely great. The thing I think you need to work on, let's talk about, I will stop complimenting you now. One, and this is an actual question I had before I move on. Is it intentional that we don't under, we don't know the stranger's gender right from the beginning? Like we wait a little bit until we find out that it's a girl and then we get corrected to a woman.
4: It wasn't gender, it was more age. Okay.
3: So then I would make it, make it clear that it's a girl right from the beginning. Okay. Just because it's like, it, it's two adjustments and we don't need two adjustments. The age thing, totally get and keep that because it's working really well. And then, and the next thing that I would say is, I think Lorna should be curious about, although maybe she knows, but then we need to understand why she couldn't ride on the ambulance. Like mm-hmm. usually they let people ride on the ambulance. It's something that, that caught me off guard. And then, and this is the part, I have one like suggestion, but this is like one, one big note. When we get to the line that reads, but now Lorna just wanted to go home and forget all about the, all about it, the screams, the deafening sound. So up until here, Lorna was this curious kind of nosy you know 60 year old woman who i kind of you know was into in a very generic way and i mean that in a good way because she's not a protagonist but then this emotional shift that lorna goes through just because she's a woman it's not working um it's it's not it's not that it's not believable, but it's not logical, right? Like it just feels the fact that she's a woman and not a girl doesn't make this worse, right? Like if anything, if you're being super protective of children, which a lot of us tend to be, it makes it a little bit better, not better, but like less worse. And and the shift, if, if this were a protagonist, I'd tell you, well, there's something in her life that makes this worse. So give us her interiority, but no, Lorna isn't a protagonist. So that wouldn't make sense. So I think that needs smoothing out. That shift doesn't need to be there. Lorna doesn't even need a shift. She can stay curious just till the end just asking nosy questions like why were two grown women like on the beach doing whatever they were doing I don't know something something to that effect making sense so far because I have a suggestion at the end but we're like doing good for time so we're
2: okay yeah okay
3: so the other thing I want to say and I'm glad you've read apples never fall is that I still think we can add something more to this to raise the stakes even more, to raise the curiosity stakes. Curiosity stakes are very specific kind of stakes. It's the Savannah comment I made, right? Like we, woman is missing, suspect dad. That's interesting enough. But when you start saying Savannah, I even remember the waitress was like a Savannah, another sibling. Like, so I guess the, the, the issue becomes, can we add anything here? And the challenge is that she's alone because everything on these pages right now, what's working is Lorna's mind, right? Because Lorna's theory, and her curiosity and her impression. The the only thing the, the woman gives us is saying that it's her fault, which is interesting. Don't get me wrong. But I think we need something more. Is it at all possible for there to be, I don't know, some mysterious hospital bracelet on in her wrist, which would indicate that there was a, an even bigger secret, like a previous hospital visit. And why would she be at the beach? Or a cell phone that she's carrying that has a weird message and the message catches Lorna's eye. I have no idea because I don't know enough about the story. And I also don't want to meddle. I want to read the pages before I meddle. But I do think that we need need something more to up the stakes even more. What Carly says makes sense. Women's fiction, a lot of the times what's what's writing in terms of women's fiction is is the interiority. And that's great. I love interiority, but we need the outside to match that so that we can stay invested in the plot as well. And right now, the questions I'm asking aren't as specific as I want them. I want you to sharpen these. I want the reader to sharpen these questions. The question right now is, who is this person? Who who was at the hospital? Who is this person in the car? What actually happened? And what is this my fault thing? But do you see how this isn't as specific as where is the mother of the four children? Why is the father a suspect? And who the heck is Savannah? And why might she be connected? Do you you understand the the parallel I'm drawing? Okay, those are my notes. Please send this
1: to me, by the way. I want to read this. we Will do. Yeah. Okay. So uh, Carly, did you have some thoughts that you wanted to give Stephanie before we hand over to Stephanie to ask questions and get feedback?
0: No, I thought uh, Cece did a wonderful critique and it sounds very interesting. I, I hope this might be a match, Cece. Let me know how it goes. <laughs>
3: He writes like Leon. It's
1: very exciting. (laughs) Stephanie, you must definitely listen to today's podcast because it's uh, Leon's editor who speaks about why Leon is so brilliant and different to other writers. So I think you'd enjoy that. All right. So Stephanie, what questions do you have? Cece, you initially said you were worried that there were thematically not enough themes. I think it was the death thing that you Mm -hmm. had a problem with. So is that something, Stephanie, that you can speak to is...
4: Can can you give um, Cece an idea of what other themes or what else you've got in there? Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, Leon Moriarty is my personal hero. So I have read Apples Never Fall Twice uh, since it came out. So You are um, even
3: more obsessed than I am.
4: (laughs) That's a huge, huge compliment that I even can come close to to her greatness. So yes, I have worried that there's too much death in this book. Um, But it is very different. It is more of a unresolved um, loss that comes between Amanda and Jamie. That's long ago. And it's pretty different from what's going on with Holly, which is her dealing with a terminal diagnosis and a lot of other things going on in her life. So and then there are other I mean, Beth has a sub a romantic subplot. And so there's other other things going on. So hopefully that will break it up enough, but I, I definitely will examine that more. So yeah, um, sorry, I'm like blanking on coming up with questions. I have all my post-its in front of me here.
1: That's yeah, so. no, no problem. If you don't specifically have questions now, um, you can always submit them to us later. In terms of what Cece was suggesting in terms of upping those stakes initially, seeing the text message or, or something like that, what what were you thinking about that? Have you got ways that you could potentially do that?
4: Right. So the whole point of the prologue is from the beginning, I want the reader to be guessing who is going to be pulled out of the water, which of the four women, the little gold band is there as like for the reader to kind of be watching who, because marital status is something that kind of comes into question, things like that. So that's kind of why I had that there. I don't know. I, I liked that Lorna got like chastened by herself, that I can, I can think of a different way to do that because I do agree that having just a reaction to the woman being a woman and not a girl, I kind of wanted to make the stranger in the car seem very vulnerable. So that's, that's why, but I think I can definitely add stakes in that there's going to be other people at the beach who go into the ambulance with the person pulled out of the water and don't leave room for the last one. She gets left behind. So I can definitely talk about that.
3: That's already really good, right? Like the concept of getting left behind, there might be something there. I, I also wanted to clarify. It's not that I think there's too much death. It's that I think there's only death. So when I say that something's monothematic, I'm saying like, we need to tease out the other themes in the other subplots so that this isn't isn't like just a book with all death. Not because there's anything wrong with death, but because you want lots and lots of, you know, really juicy themes there to ensure that we're all like really hooked on what's going on. So I'm excited to read this.
4: Well, thank you. So um Bianca, you didn't have a problem with the with the prologue because I, I listened to a previous um podcast with deconstructing Theo or reconstructing Theo where you didn't like that. So I thought you might tear me apart today. Tear you apart me. Never. I'm like a kitten.
1: Yeah, I agree. It worked incredibly well. You know, it's not, we keep saying on the podcast, it's not that we have a problem with prologues per se. It's that we have a problem with prologues that are used as band-aids to fix opening chapters that aren't particularly strong. And that definitely isn't the case
4: in this instance. So well done. I guess my really quick last question is, um, would a timestamp work? It's going to be August. I have no clue what year. And then it kind of goes back to May. I think like the month timestamps work because you don't
1: want to be obviously talking about covid in your novel, and if you put the year with no reference to COVID, people are like, why the hell are these women together? It's irresponsible. They shouldn't be all together during COVID. So I don't think you need the year stamp. What do you think, CC? Or do you think you can just say present day and then five months before? Or do you think she needs the August and the, and the May?
3: Either would work. A timestamp is never a bad thing. Like it, it, it always just adds clarity. I would, if you're going to go with August, I might make some reference to the summer, like to the, you know, we, we shouldn't have gone wherever is it that we went in May. And then like some, or, or if not just present day works. They, they both work. And I'm not trying to be unhelpful. I'm just at this point, so curious to know what happens that I want to read and then be like, Stephanie, this is what I think. And I do promise to give you feedback, even if for whatever reason, this isn't for me. I promise to tell you what I thought,
1: think about it. Yeah, you know what? The timestamp thing is is important. Because- because people want to know are they reading a contemporary novel is it happening in modern day and when you have all the things that anchor a reader in modern day like cell phones and some reference to whatever then they find then they don't necessarily need that exact timestamp and you can work that in in the book are you going to be going backwards and forwards between august and may or this is august and then you go back to may yeah Yeah, then i don't even think you need the timestamps just do two months earlier or whatever because you need timestamps when there's a long progression of time or when you're hopping around in time otherwise I don't think that's even necessary this is
3: really good Stephanie really really good
1: thank you so much wonderful so that brings us to another episode of books with hooks for our listeners we're going to be alternating some weeks it's going to be us chatting about submissions without the authors on the podcast some weeks like today we're going to bring on two authors one for Carly one for Cece so for those of you who are still on the fence about submitting that's how it's going to work and you can see it before we go to today's guest, this just a reminder that CC has a course coming up on the 4th of November at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. That's called Writing Emotion, How to Weave Emotion into Your Story. Go to CC's Instagram page to find the link there to book for that course.
0: rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to CarlyWaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code pod15 for the month of April at checkout. That's pod pod fifteen at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course.
1: Today's guest grew up in Sri Lanka, completed her undergrad at Mills College in California and lived in the UK before moving back to her sunny little island. She works as a corporate trainer, owns a chain of cookie stores and is a proud dog mom to her two spoiled huskies. It's my pleasure to welcome Amanda Thissa. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Bianca. Thank you so much for having me. This is so exciting. And everybody who listens to the podcast knows how much we love dogs. Uh, and we have a firm belief <laughs> that you cannot be a creative person if you if you don't have animals of some kind. So please, when the episode airs, can we ask you to tweet some pictures of your huskies for us?
5: Oh, of course. That's my pleasure. Um, I have probably a million photos
1: of them on my phone so we have a selection no problem (laughs) I think going forward instead of posting pictures of the authors when we do our socials we're going to post pictures of their dogs (laughs) I can see that being very very popular I think that's a fantastic idea so let's talk about you, Amanda. This has been, I think, an amazing journey for you in terms of your journey to publication as a debut author. And we love, our listeners love listening to how an author became published, the whole origin story of their novel, how they got the agent, how they got to the publishing phase. So could you take us through that for us?
5: So after. A bit of a stop and start on writing, I think, during my... I've always written in some sense. I've just never made that conscious decision where I told myself, uh-huh, I am going to be a writer. That that never happened. So I've always written in some sense from the time I was very young, probably because I've always been an avid reader from the time I was very young. I always, I was very bookish, you can say, as a child. And so it just seemed like a very logical next step for me. So when I was about nine or 10, I started writing my first novel. I say that in air quotes, written in pink pen, a pink pen, and starred me and my cousins going on this, like, adventure. Um, it was ridiculous. But uh, I was very much sounds, I- sounds amazing. Sounds <laughs> amazing. It sounds like a ripoff is what it sounds like. <laughs> but hey, um, I was having fun with it. And then, of course, there were those like rite of passage, angsty teenage poems that I think everyone goes through or everyone dabbles with when they're younger. And then I suddenly got into this this mood where I told myself if I don't write and have something published before my 30th birthday, that I would be an absolute failure in life. So this was me in my early twenties, like, you know, putting all these weird rules on myself that absolutely had no bearing um, on anything. But, um, you know, I I set up this really funny, uh, like goalpost and I had written a novel at the time, um without really putting much thought into it and i thought i I was living in sri lanka so i thought hey i'll just self-publish it here and see where it goes. And luckily for me, it won a local award. So that really gave me the confidence that I needed to start taking this a little bit more seriously and try to actively uh, pursue traditional publishing. Because I knew from that experience that I didn't want to self-publish this time around. And I knew that I wanted to pursue traditional publishing. And I became very serious about it. But I was working on a book that wasn't working. It, It wasn't going according to plan. After a lot of sort of back and forth and trudging through it, I had a moment where I got very angry, and then I was writing in this angry voice, and then I was having a lot of fun writing in this angry voice. And I thought, hey, why don't I make one of? Why don't I make my main character speak in this this voice? And I gutted out that entire old story that I was working out. I took out the parts that I thought would work, like the plot twist and the big reveal, and then I incorporated this new angry voice, which, you know, grew into Coloma, the main character of My Speed Girl. And suddenly something clicked and I raced through this draft. I spent a lot of time editing this draft. Of course, first drafts are never very good. And I started to think, okay, hey, maybe I can query some agents and see if I can seek out representation. And I was very lucky at the time. It it happened very serendipitously, I think, because I was late. I was waiting for a meeting and the person that I was meeting was running late. And I just thought I'd go on Twitter and see what was going on. I rarely ever, back in the day, I would rarely ever check Twitter. And I started seeing this thing called DVPIT. I was like, what is that? You know, it really sort of piqued my interest. I I went and I checked it out and I was like, oh, all right, a platform where, you know, authors from diverse backgrounds can tweet a pitch about their book. And if an agent likes it, you are basically invited to query them, which is great because it forms that first sort of level of communication with an agent because cold querying is very, very difficult, as, as we all know. And um, yeah, I was very lucky that I got a few likes on my tweets and that is how I met my absolutely amazing, wonderful agent, Melissa Janasco And yeah, and then she took on my story and in the beginning itself, she said, "I have some suggestions for you to improve it, and is that going to be okay?" And I was like, "Yeah, of course, definitely, because I was really craving some sort of editorial input at that point because I lived in Sri Lanka. we didn't have access to you know critique groups and things like that at the time here. And she gave me some amazing wonderful feedback. And we went on submission after a few rounds of edits. And that's how I met my wonderful editor, Jen
1: Monroe, at Berkeley and got the deal Um, With them. It's amazing. Amazing. So, there's a whole bunch of things in there that I absolutely love that have struck a chord. So, the one is the serendipity part about it, because, you know, Mm -hmm. I often say that luck plays a huge part in this whole journey. You know, there's writers who've written amazing manuscripts, perhaps haven't had the luck of having the right people seeing it at the right time. And so they give up. So, I love that, you know, someone was running late. Did you ever thank that person for running late?
5: Yes, I thank him. Like as soon as I got the book deal, I called him up and uh, it was funny. It's a, it was a work meeting, but it was with one of my friends and I called him up. I was like, goodness, thank goodness you are late and he's always late so it's like you know what that's fine I normally get upset with you for being late but you are forgiven my friend um yeah yeah it's wild thinking about
1: it now I'm someone who's really time urgent and I'm like if I make arrangements to meet people at six o'clock I expect them to be there at six o'clock because otherwise I'm like it's very disrespectful (laughs) of my time but this is the one instance where it's like thank goodness this chronically late person was late once again because who knows how the path or the journey would have been if you hadn't sent that one tweet right Mm -hmm. I know it's it's just it's wild absolutely
5: mind-blown and it it just worked out so well because I I feel my agent is just such a perfect fit for the ideas that I have and the kind of writing that I do because she gives me such fantastic input I can't even imagine where the path would have led if I hadn't met her or went with someone else that would have been it's just
1: unthinkable for me now. So. And, and a question I want to ask, because we get this a lot on the podcast, is your editor a person of color or not? Because often we get people like diverse authors who say, should I only be submitting diverse stories to editors of color? Is it possible to submit a diverse story to an editor who's not a person of color? So what was your experience in this regard in terms of your agent and in terms of your editor? Great question.
5: Neither my agent nor my editor are women of color. They have been amazing at championing my story and never, ever, Censoring me or made me feel uncomfortable in any way, if at all, they have been extremely accommodating. And that was something that I was very, very conscious about through the process, especially because my main character has, she's got a lot of thoughts, right? She's got a lot of feelings, and she's she's quite abrasive and she uses very colorful language. And I was very worried at first that someone would try to take her on and water her down. And in fact, through the querying process with agents, I did have some conversations where, you know, those agents did want to sort of tone Paloma down a little bit. But one thing that I am just so appreciative of is that both my agent and my editor have always just understood what I was trying to go for, have been nothing but supportive of myself and my character and and the voice that I wanted to give Paloma
1: yeah that's that's hugely encouraging to hear because you know there's been horror stories in the industry that you know mm-hmm. authors of color pitch a, a character who's a person of color and then they get told oh well this is great but could they be white or could it be less Uh, you know, whatever. And and that is just infuriating. So it's wonderful to hear that you had such a great experience with that. Let's talk about Paloma and the kind of character she is, because that's another thing that, you know, we hear a lot from from editors is that they want characters to be likable. They need these characters (laughs) to be softened and to be nice. And Paloma is just kick ass from the opening chapter. She just doesn't take shit. And there's a lot of cursing in here. And this is another thing we get told take out the cursing because otherwise you're going to have readers complaining about all the curse words so let's talk about how did you manage to make her kind of vulnerable and accessible to readers because if a character is not likable then the reader has to have something about them that they can get on board with and mm-hmm. was it something you had to work on softening her or is it something that came to you in those early drafts
5: that's a very interesting question definitely there was a journey that we took that ended up with Paloma sort of being who she was at the end. But I think that See, seeing obviously curse words and things like that on the page might be a shock, right? But the thing about Paloma and the reason why I think people find her in some sense relatable is that she approaches situations very much in the way that a lot of women have been trained to approach situations in that she's thinking these very uncharitable, very ungracious thoughts in her mind. And, you know, all the swearing, all the the cursing, everything, it, it all happens in her head. It's just that as readers, we are given a front row seat into what's going on in her mind because the story is told in first person. But Paloma wouldn't dare utter any of this out loud, right? She wears this mask of perfection and she portrays herself in the way that women, and especially women of color, are expected to portray themselves, especially when navigating white spaces. So I think in that sense, we can relate to her. There is always that idea that she is an underdog, right? She is a person who has been taken out of you know, her comfort zone and trust into this world where she feels like she does not belong. And all of us can relate to not feeling like we belong at some point in our lives. I mean, or at least most of us um, can, can relate to that sort of sense. So because of that, I think it does help to kind of bridge that gap between this very abrasive, very almost rude, mean-spirited, um, very salty kind of character. And the other thing that I thought about a lot was if somebody is that way, if somebody is a little abrasive and a little rude and you know, thinks of life or, or, or views life from a particular lens, there's usually a reason why they are that way. And I was very careful when I was putting... Paloma's character together or crafting this voice that I gave her enough of a reason and I was able to give the reader enough insight into why she turned
1: out the way she did. Yeah. Let's talk about the structure of the novel. So, you know, something I'm always saying to listeners is just because the story happens in a linear way in terms of a character's born on this date and then these traumatic things happen to them in their childhood and then they're an adult. Just because a story happens in a linear way doesn't mean that you need to write the story in a linear way. You can, Mm -hmm. you know, represent a story structure in a non-linear narrative, meaning you could begin on their deathbed and then go back in time and jump all over the place. Or you could begin in modern day, present day, and then jump back to this part in their childhood that was so defining. And so that's something that you've done in the novel, and you've used this dual timeline- backwards and forwards in time between present day and the past. Was that something that was always the structure for the novel? How did that come about? How did you decide on that? I did want
5: to base it in the past and the present. From the start, it did make sense to me in terms of that final reveal to have this this thing happen in the past and that be the reason why things turn out the way that they do in the present. It was definitely a fun
2: experience
5: for me and it meant a lot because it it meant by you know setting things in the past that I could bring in elements of Sri Lanka and and I grew up in Sri Lanka, I still live here now. So, you know, I could bring in these elements from the childhood ghost stories that we used to say to the conversations that I might have had with my friends and things like that. So it was very special to me to include all of that in. Although I do have to say that I had to spend a lot of time thinking about the 12-year-old Paloma's voice and how to make it as authentic as possible. And so something I actually did was I pulled out all my old journals from that age, from between ages like 10, 10 and 12, and they're ridiculous, right? They're all like- (laughs) oh, my brother was so mean to me today. (laughs) Oh, you know, this friend of mine, she said this thing and it really hurt my feelings. Um, It was so hilarious reading back um, on it, but it really did help me sort of jog my memory and think back to when I was 12 and the things that we would talk about and the, the way we would speak to each other. So that was a lot of fun for me as well. But I definitely knew that I wanted to write in a dual timeline. It did take... A little bit of planning, of course, and there were Excel sheets involved to make sure that I don't, you know, miss anything and that the the flow worked out okay. But I tend to really enjoy stories that are in the dual timeline that have that back and forth just cuz i think sometimes that break from tension is it can be fun if you play with it a little bit
1: so for me it was always
5: in the plan and i'm glad it worked out yeah
1: and you know that the big challenge of having those dual timeline narratives is that what's happening now needs to be as compelling as what's happening in the past because you don't want your reader loving the past more than the present or feel mm-hmm. like they kept getting pulled back and that's something you did so very well like the present was constantly compelling and the present story was moving forward at pace. And so when we went back, it didn't feel like we were being dragged back with this backstory or that it slowed down the pacing at all. So that's something for those of you who are working on dual timelines is something that you really have to consider there there as well. And what you said about capturing the child's voice then as well, it's amazing that you had those journals. I think I got rid of all of my journals. So I I don't have... I don't have anything, I think, before high school and those are cringeworthy enough. So, yeah, everything's cringeworthy, really. When you read
5: back, I mean, like what
1: I wrote in my 20s was cringeworthy. So, hey. Yeah. But it's all part of the process. And that's the thing. You've got to write the cringe-worthy stuff to learn from it, to get better. And so none of those are parts that you can hurdle over in your path to publication, because all of that stuff is what made you a better writer today. Just what you said about your Excel spreadsheets. And I want to say this for the listeners. There's an amazing software. It's called Eon or aon Two it's timeline software that you can either use for project management if you're in corporates or you can use it for storytelling and it keeps track of every single character what age they are when certain things happen the dates at which certain things happen and you can put all kinds of information in there and color code it which is a bit easier than excel and the nice thing about that is when you change a character's age for whatever reason maybe it didn't work to have them this particular age if you change it in the software it changes everything else for you so you don't have to keep track of how old each person is when so if you're writing another story like that Amanda look out for that for that software um I found it found it incredibly useful yeah in terms of your career going forward have you are you working on your next book is it something similar tell us about that
5: sure so I don't know how much I can actually talk about book two but I can say that it also it takes place in Sri Lanka completely and um but it's a different part of Sri Lanka because. You know, whereas the girls grew up in sort of this orphanage, this focuses more on Colombo high society and it centers around um, a big Sri Lankan wedding. It is a suspense. And again, it has these very nuanced, complex female narratives that I love writing.
1: Yeah, so it seems like you found your niche as a writer in terms of the kind of in, th- in terms of the kinds of stories you want to tell. And it's also hugely encouraging that you are in Sri Lanka because you know, we often get questions from our listeners who say, Oh, well, I'm based in South Africa or I'm based in Australia or I'm based here or I'm based there. How can I get published by an American publisher? And Look at you. When you pitched, you pitched to what? An American agent and Mm -hmm. then was sold to an American publisher. And it didn't bother them at all that that's where you were based. Mm -hmm. It didn't at all, which was absolutely fantastic for me because
5: you know sometimes you you naturally think that there will be these big obstacles and and hurdles and to be fair with all like modern technology and things like that I haven't really faced too much of an issue being in Sri Lanka I've never felt that that was disadvantages to me in any way at all and like my team have been incredibly accommodating with things like the time difference and they're so it's very they're very sweet they're very concerned about you know whether I'm getting enough sleep these days and things like that but it i haven't really felt it be an obstacle to me in the way that i had initially part when I started on this journey. It was certainly something that was more of a barrier in my mind. And I try to speak to as many other Sri Lankan writers as I can or writers from other countries just to encourage them. Because in this day and age with like the internet and everything that's available to us now, it's really not how it used to be in the past.
1: Yeah. So as a, a freshly minted debut author, do you have any advice for our listeners who are busy working on their first manuscript, who are busy revising? who are perhaps in the trenches in terms of submitting to agents, getting all of those rejections, what is, what's the biggest advice that, that you have to share with them in their journey to publication?
5: I think my biggest bit of advice is that these paths and these journeys from writing to finding an agent to getting a book deal, they're all different for everyone. And, you know, you speak to some writers, they're like, I have a regimented writing structure. I wake up in the morning, I have my cup of coffee, I write for eight hours. There are writers like me who spend a lot of time on my thinking couch and, and wait for the story to come. And then when it comes, it comes very quickly and it comes hard and fast and I have to write it all down within like a month or two or I just lose track of it. So there are different types of writers. I have friends who have writers who have met agents in completely different ways. I know writers who've been querying for five, six years and then found an agent. And I've had friends who have sent out like one query letter and and had that agent approach them. I've had friends who've had agents seek them out because they've read their writing on uh, you know some other platform um, you know things like that so this path is so varied and the worst thing you can do is to watch someone else and compare yourself against them and get disheartened as to why things aren't happening the way you envision and um, it's something that I've had to come to terms with as well because it's so easy as a writer to think oh I see this person and, and they're doing XYZ and why am I not doing XYZ or all that writers turning out so many books and I'm just really slow writer and why am i not producing at that same speed and it's really, it's so different for everyone. And the worst thing you can do for your writing and for your creative process is to put this unnecessary pressure on you.
1: Yeah, especially especially with those dates deadlines, like by the time I'm 30 or by the time yes. I'm fifty, as well. So I'm glad yeah. you've learned from that. Yeah, certainly,
5: certainly. It was completely unnecessary. I didn't need to do that at all. But I think, yeah, I think we just put these unnecessary rules on ourselves and we think we're accomplishing something by it. But really all we're doing is making life that much harder for ourselves
1: absolutely well thank you amanda it's been wonderful chatting with you for our listeners go out and get my sweet girl it was a heck of a page turner twists and turns really really enjoyable for those of you who working in the thriller genre or who working with those prickly kind of protagonists as well definitely get the book to see how amanda did it and we wish you much luck with this and we hope to have you back on the podcast with your second novel Oh, thank you so much, Bianca. I would absolutely love to. And it was so much fun chatting with you. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes.